Welcome to episode 58 of FRT, the IF podcast on the intersection of finance, regulation and technology. I'm Brad Carr, today in Zurich on the occasion of the IAF Board of Directors meeting, with a quick shout out to our gracious hosts at Credit Suisse. I'm joined today by our special guest, Douglas Flint. Douglas is the chairman of Standard Life Aberdeen, and of course he was previously the chairman of HSBC, during which time he also served as chairman of the IAF. Douglas, thank you for joining us and welcome to FRT. My pleasure. I want to start with yourself. Beyond your extensive career in banking and now at Standard Life Aberdeen, another large global business, but one that spans a number of different sectors across asset management and insurance. How have you found the transition across sectors and what have you found most motivating and exciting in your new capacity? I think it's a fascinating place to be at this point in history. One of the things I've found very interesting is the longer duration of the asset management industry as it seeks to contribute to demographic aging and savings. I mean, I think one of the things that attracted me to the industry was the challenge of a world in in which people are happily living longer, living healthier, but not saving enough to enjoy the kind of retirement that they hope for. And I think there's a a real opportunity for the industry alongside public policy and and, and the regulatory world to contribute to a combination of education and and, and product design to help people save for the retirement that they wish. So I want to pick up a little further on that. You, You refer there to longer duration, longevity, people are living longer, whether or not they're well prepared for the longer period of life in retirement. But you also perhaps you know, jog me there a little on, on the difference between banking and insurance in the areas of focus. We're doing a project at the moment with Deloitte on the barriers to digital transformation. And one of the chief digital officers who's worked in both the banking and the insurance sectors, he made the observation that banking is about P&L and insurance is about balance sheet. This notion that you perhaps churn less of your business on a single year-to-year basis in the insurance sector. So I think as well as what you described there of the longevity, the longer duration on the customer side, is there also a bit of a different mindset perhaps in how that manifests within the business? Well, I certainly think there's a difference between life assurance and banking in the sense that in banking, you do the maturity transformation by taking short-term deposits and having long-term assets. In insurance, you have long-term liabilities, uh, but you're collecting the cash up front, but you're not giving it back for 20, 30, 40 years. So mm. it's a very different mindset. So I can see that an insurance balance sheet is possibly more of a focus, although at the end of the day, both business models have to be sustainably profitable for the industry to exist. And of course, in the world I'm in now, which is uh, managing money, uh, both for individuals and for institutions. It's important that the products, the solutions that are provided address the needs of the institutions and the individuals at a cost that is uh, proportionate to the value that is being created. Digital identity, I think, is one area of great opportunity, um, particularly around enhancing AML capabilities and efficiencies. There's a lot of challenges in how we implement that effectively, and in particular, how we implement across borders. A lot of these challenges are cross-sectoral as well as cross-border. What do you see as perhaps the greatest obstacle in pursuing digital identity enhancements and, and what needs to be done to overcome this? It's a huge question. I mean, I think one of the challenges now is the regulation and public policy has so far largely been national or perhaps regional if you could look at Europe, where in fact digital is truly global. I mean, the largest digital companies uh, have uh, customers, have clients, members that are bigger than any nation in the world. And, And therefore, there is a disparity between the organizations and the private sector that collect data and the regulatory frameworks that are beginning to think about how that and if that should be controlled. 
I think there's also a huge challenge for policymakers, regulators, and indeed the industry in that there is no framework of reference that sort of controls how advances in technology can be used. So technology develops and there are tremendously good applications of that technology development. And there are also applications that we might want to pause and say, is that the right thing to do? And we're catching up with that. I think as far as the financial sector is concerned and and the way that it can be and has been abused by people who have committed financial crime through the platforms that exist, I mean, there are three elements to protection. One is we do need to settle on a, a framework of collecting digital identities and giving everyone a digital identity so that we can identify who is using the system. We need to have transparency and beneficial ownership that is available to public authorities and indeed to those who undertake KYC protection activities. And we need to have a much more inclusive and carefully curated framework of data sharing within the industry across border and between the public and private sectors because the disparity of information creates the gaps that those who are intent on abusing the financial system or indeed any platform can do what they wish to do with less chance of being detected than we would like. So there's a couple of great points you make there that we should delve into a little bit further. I want to come back to talking about KYC, the economics of KYC when we talk about financial crime. But let's go with the use of data for a moment and in particular the ethical use of data. Banks and insurers, I think, each have very strong track records in protecting customers' data uh, and are trusted. I frequently cited a great chart from the Bank of England's Future of Finance report that showed that 94% of consumers identified their bank as the party that they most trust with their data, vis-a-vis some of the others, such as the new tech firms and social media companies. And we discussed this on episode 52 with, with the report author Hugh Van Steenis, that as we enter into a new world where data increasingly is monetized and, and transferred and shared in different ways, And with the emergence of new analytics like artificial intelligence, what does the industry really need to do to ensure that we're preserving the trust of customers in the face of that? I think that's a very interesting and difficult question. I mean, as we move more and more towards open banking and the information that was proprietary to banks is, for good reason, um, uh, being shared with others. It's no longer the case that individuals can believe that the data their bank has on them is only available to their bank because they've authorized it to be shared with others. And indeed, certainly the younger generations are much more comfortable in opening up their entire identity to multiple users of that data in exchange for services and goods and a feeling of inclusiveness. I think where people are only beginning to realize how much data they have shared and how little control they've got over where that data is located, how it's monetized, how it's shared, and for what purpose. I think that you know individuals are sometimes confused in their own minds as to whether data sharing is good. I mean, we like it when we go to get on an airplane if we're recognized as a frequent flyer and given a, a special status. We're less happy when somebody knows about our personal life or believes that should be privileged to only a very few people that we want to share that data with. And we, we're protective of our financial affairs. We're protective of our medical history. We're protective of lots of aspects of our personality that we don't think is right that other people have. And yet for other things, we're very comfortable where it confers status or privilege upon us. And, mm. you know, getting the dividing line between what we're happy with sharing because it's in our interest and what we're not happy with sharing because we believe it's our privacy is, I think, going to be a huge, huge challenge for public policymakers and a need for individuals. 
Well, and amongst individuals, you've got differing preferences of the convenience factor versus the privacy factor as well. That, as you say, a lot of the, the younger people perhaps have a different value on that to some other cohorts of the population. Yes, and I think there are big challenges for our industry as well, because in all aspects, not just in the financial services industry, data gives line of sight to organisations selling goods and services as to what consumers' price appetite is. And therefore, is it right that a artificial intelligence machine learning can say, well, this person is willing to pay considerably more than another person, and therefore it's okay to charge mm. that person a higher price, even though the economics of the transaction and indeed the correct price, if you like, the best price for that individual may be a great deal lower. And I think yeah. we're, we are going to be faced with those kind of ethical challenges increasingly as AI sort of segments even more particularly individuals. It's kind of the, the question of primary differentiated pricing, whether that's on the basis of a true underlying risk factor in the case of a financial product or whether it's perhaps on the basis of a different factor that is probably a lot more sensitive. And yeah, propensity to pay. Yeah. You, you mentioned open banking, and one of the issues that we've been concerned about at the IEF has been around the competitive anomalies, in particular the one-directional data flows where a consumer can instruct the bank to pass their data to another party but not have the symmetrical or reciprocal flow to that. It was a really interesting piece that David Hardoon of the Monetary Authority of Singapore wrote in the last week. There's been a lot of social media commentary on this in which he, I think, made a complementary view that I think picks up a point you made about consumers' data ownership. And his point was, when your data is at the bank, you know where it is. And open banking has this notion of you are, as a consumer, empowered to instruct to, to pass my data. But once you've passed it to a tech firm, you don't necessarily know what the tech firm does with it. And you don't have the same data protection framework as to what is then done with your data once it's in the hands of the tech firm. I thought it was a really interesting angle that's probably a complementary one to our competition focus, but a distinct point probably tying more to the angle you've referred to of, of consumer ownership of data. Yes, I think there's two aspects to that. One is I think that there's a, a discussion to be had with public policy in the regulatory framework as to whether financial data, like health data, should be more restricted so that if it is shared with another institution, it must be under terms that restrict the onward transfer of that data with severe penalties if inadvertently or deliberately it is transferred. I think also there's an argument that says that if financial data is shared with a non-financial firm that wishes to use it for its own purposes, that should be done on the basis of reciprocity so that if a non-financial firm wants the bank data, then it has to make its data available to the bank. So there's, there's an exchange. Can you imagine how much better KYC and financial crime detection would be if banks had access to all the data and images and, and, and algorithms that exist within the major search engines and, and social media companies? If there was much more pooling of data for the purpose of financial crime identification and prosecution, we would do a much better job collectively. And would that be a good thing for society to embrace? I think you've probably hit there the, the key theme that we took out of the, the IF study on machine learning in AML last year which was that if you want to turn on a new machine learning algorithms in the AML space with the existing data sets, you'll get a small uplift. But if you look at the work that the likes of, of Feed's Eye, some of the external vendors have shown in, in the areas of fraud where they've got much deeper and richer data sets, that they're able to get a 75% a hit rate versus the 1%, 2% hit rate that, that uh, Europol talk about in AML. And it really underlined that we need to get the data sharing systems working across the private sector and between the private and the public sector we need to get the feedback loop from law enforcement 
so that we have a better reference data set and an ability to train the algorithms. And then we can potentially use machine learning to get a, a quantum leap uplift in our detection of illicit activity. That's definitely right. But, but consumers would then have to be happy that almost anything they share on any platform is effectively available to mm. authorised authorities. And, and then there will be a debate around the world as to which countries, which authorities within those countries are eligible to have access to the data. I mean, one of the things I find quite interesting is that if you go back 20 years in banking, banks may well have taken a similar position that we see in the, the, the social media and internet companies today, that we're simply platforms. It's not our job to determine what people do across our platforms. If we come across it, we'll close it down and report it, but it's not our job to go looking for it. That was 20, 30 years ago where banks mm. were. And you can argue that banks are simply platforms. I mean, there are only three things you can send electronically, text, images, and money. And the transmission of money is, is heavily regulated with huge public policy responsibilities. At the moment, data and images are, are regulated to a much lesser extent. And the responsibility for what happens across platforms is much, much lesser for the social media and, and internet companies than it is for the financial system. We should pause and think whether that's the right thing, because as you say, there's a lot richer data on those engines than there is in the financial system, which is restricted to, to, to money and, and therefore would be a great boon to law enforcement. On the other hand, it's everything that Big Brother in 1984 talked about, <laughs> if you think that way. Yes. We touched earlier the economics of KYC. I think it's a topic we should also cover. KYC can be a rigorous and, and therefore costly process. Some of the new entrants, some of the prospective digital currency providers, uh, most notably Facebook's Libra proposal last year, sought to, to utilise the scrutiny that existing providers like banks provide and perhaps being able to, to piggyback off that somewhat. Does this create a competitive mismatch where perhaps the legacy providers, the banks and insurers, are expected to bear the costs without being remunerated as the, the revenue flows potentially go to, to these new entrants? Well, that would be a very poor outcome, and, and, and I suspect there would be uh, a lot of reflection within the financial industry as to if they were prepared to be as open about sharing data if they were effectively being the primary, having their primary responsibility for crime detection, bearing the cost of KYC that other was piggyback on. I mean, I would definitely submit that for those who wish to get into the transmission of whatever you want to call it, digital currency or tokens or anything else that, that effectively are capable of being monetized then that they are in the money transmission business and the money transmission business brings with it KYC responsibilities and financial crime detection. And if you're in money transmission or anything that looks and walks and talks like money transmission, you have those responsibilities. I would find it extraordinary if that were not the position taken by the regulatory policy community because otherwise it just opens up an enormous gap in the detection and uh, prosecution of financial crime. And getting back to what you were saying on machine learning and AI, we're only at the beginning of understanding how sophisticated that can be in terms of deep fakes and identity mm. fraud and, and push payment fraud. So that people who have historically and for very good reason trusted their banks are now being seduced by people pretending to be their bank or their utility provider or the police or the government or the inland revenue or whatever it is, encouraging people to do things that are purported to be protective of them but, but are actually inviting them to participate unknowingly in some kind of a scam. We've got to think very carefully now about how easy it is for people to be misled and how do we deal with that? And it's a much broader issue than just the financial sector. And that's the, the issue of the, I guess, still fairly low level of data literacy on the part of, of a lot of the population. 
Yes, but I think it's also that we are inherently trusting as individuals when we're faced with authority. Mm, we, yes. you know, we, we trust someone who purports to have a protection role, whether it's a policeman, a fireman, a member of the civil service or whatever. We mm. tend to, if they or, have an authority... Or, or, or your bank. Or, or your, your bank, or your yeah. bank, your insurer. We tend to trust them when they say, we're here to protect you. Can you give me the following information? And it's done cleverly now by the, the worst examples of those who are perpetrating scams. Mm. Lastly, I, I want to look ahead to the rest of this week and beyond our board meeting today, many of us are heading up to Davos for the World Economic Forum and a big look ahead to some of the mega themes for the world economy for the coming year and beyond. What are you looking forward to at Davos this year? I think the the most interesting thing at Davos each year is the mood. I mean, you can kind of sense whether people are confident about the future, excited about the future, or nervous that, that something unexpected may be about to happen. So I guess sensing the mood. Clearly, the, the big discussions or the, the big issues will be around climate change, will be around global inequality. Uh, and these are these are mega trends, mega issues that that only collective action by all the major countries of the world acting together can make a difference. And I, you know, I think the sort of virtue signalling or or sort of extravagant statements of ambition are unwelcome. What I hope we'll see is, you know, what would the actions that are needed to be taken over what kind of a time frame to get us close to where we want to get to? What needs to happen, and how do we build the the education programs and the understanding? Standing among the population as to how individually we can contribute to the choices we're going to have to make to get to where we need to get to, to avoid unwelcome and indeed tragic consequences from, from climate change, which more and more people are clearly aware of when we see the, the tragedy of the fires in, in, in Australia and some of the tidal disasters that have hit various countries. That is going to be the huge discussion, but I hope it's proportionate to what can be done over what timescale as opposed to it all needs to be done tomorrow. And I think within the financial sector, it was quite striking at the, the risk mines conference in Amsterdam in December that, that climate risk was very much the, the top topic. The ethical use of data uh, was probably the number two. But in terms of climate, it was, I think, in that conference at least, very much the insurers that were leading the way and that had done a lot of sophisticated modelling already on the impact of, for instance, a one degree move in ocean temperatures and what that means in terms of the ferocity and frequency of catastrophic storms. So there's, I guess, a lot of that work happening within the industry, but as you say, on a wider societal impact, how we translate that into tangible actions is, is the, the question of the day. And the challenges less spoken about in that context are the impact of, of growing population, another 2 billion people expected to be in the world, and the fact that the countries most exposed to the impacts of climate change are among the poorest. Yes, and among those that are going to see the largest expansion of population and therefore the sort of the second order impact, which could be devastating for the kind of societies we hope for in the future is uncontrolled migration. Mm. If people can't live in parts of the world because the climate is so unhospitable or indeed their economics are destroyed because of climate or natural disasters, they will be forced to move. And, mm. and we should be very thoughtful about the steps that we need to take collectively across the world to protect the societies that are harmonious today, broadly speaking, from an influx of economic and other migrants that have no choice. Well, Douglas, thank you very much for what's been very thought-provoking as always. And we've covered a fair bit of ground here. I, I want to just highlight a couple of the key points from, from the discussion. The emphasis you make there within businesses like Standard Life Aberdeen on providing for human longevity, the, the focus on longer duration assets. And I think also when we look at the digital world, the distinction you make there where a lot of what's happening 
in the private sector is inherently global in its nature and the disparity between that and some of the regulatory frameworks that are more nationally or regionally based. I like the three elements of data protection that you described, the the framework for using and collecting digital identities, greater transparency in government use, but also the framework for data usage and sharing across sectors. And I think that linked very neatly to the point about the asymmetries in open banking, but also what happens beyond open banking. And we've seen the Financial Conduct Authority release a recent consultation on open finance that would extend into other sectors, whether we ultimately go beyond that into a broader open data ecosystem. And we look forward to gauging the mood at Davos. The sense of anticipation, and as you highlighted, the question of what tangible actions we can take on climate and inequality. Thank you very much for joining us on FRT. My pleasure. Thank you. Ahead on FRT, we'll be continuing in Switzerland. We'll report from that World Economic Forum in Davos on the key takeaways there. We'll also debrief the first paper in our three-part series with Deloitte that I alluded to earlier on digital transformation, specifically on the top nine barriers to transformation that we've identified from our interviews with chief digital officers and chief innovation officers with firms around the world. Please join us for those upcoming episodes. I'm Brad Carr. Thanks for joining us on FRT.